episode 333, actually using care plans in the real world. Today, I speak with, in order of appearance, Jeff Hogan, Daryl Moon, Dr. Grace Tarrell, Dr. Rich Clasco, Nicole Bradbury, and Kelly Conroy. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Recently, I was talking to someone, a civilian, not in healthcare. And I mentioned something about how patients don't always get a treatment plan, a care plan, based on the best evidence, or sometimes even any evidence. Here's how I explained it to him, you know, like what this looks like in the real world. Let's say two patients, patient one and patient two, with the exact same clinical needs and zip code. Both these two patients see the exact same doctor. The only difference between these two patients is that they're two different colors. And let's add a third patient into this mix. Say me. Let's say I have the exact same profile and zip code as those first two patients. I see a different clinician in the exact same practice, though. In all these circumstances, evidence is evidence, right? There should be one care plan that all three of us get when we show up at that same care setting. I mean, until the evidence changes, that is, right? But the reality is that it's just as likely that those other two patients and I, we all get various shades of different care plans. The civilian I was having the original conversation with about, you know, evidence-based medicine and this care planning, he literally recoiled in surprise. He was shocked. He said he thought medicine was more science than that. I'm going to take that anecdote as a data point to suggest that there is a disconnect between what patients think is going on and what is actually going on relative to how care plans tend to happen in healthcare. Alex Akers from Health Catalyst in episode 176 and Clint Phillips from Medici in episode 201 get into this in detail. But here's Jeff Hogan from Upside Health Advisors and Rogers Benefit Group on the consequences We know if you have multiple myeloma or prostate cancer or breast cancer or what have you, there are nuanced, appropriate care paths for people that will create better outcomes, but they need to get on that nuanced care path, and many times they don't. For that person, then shotgun chemotherapy with, you know, that kills your your system and has variable outcomes. There are just so many things that can be done with nuanced care paths using e-consults, a very simple infrastructure mechanism to create these nuanced care paths. A tangential point, and this is inarguable, if anyone is trying to improve the quality of care delivered in any provider organization, or any organization really, regardless if that organization is a solo practitioner or employs thousands of clinicians, the only way to improve the quality of care across time and entire patient population is to have processes or care plans or pathways or treatment plans or whatever you want to call them. If multiple doctors are treating the exact same patient in the exact same care setting, how is everybody singing off the same sheet of music? Because if a practice doesn't ensure a thread of evidence-based decision-making runs through patient care plans and that those care plans are consistent, the quality of care will always regress to the mean. The average of care will always be the top of the bell curve. You'll always hover around 65-ish, 70% of whatever measure. More on the why and how of that in the podcast with Bob Matthews, episode 315. 
But here's another perspective that nets the same conclusion. Let me read what Meryl Guzer has said about successful population health. If population health management is the hospital sector's outward-looking strategy for improving healthcare outcomes at a lower cost, greater standardization in care delivery is its inward-looking twin. Hospitals on the cutting edge of quality improvement took a page right out of Edward Deming's playbook for improving quality through standardization. They adopted common care algorithms to reduce the use of unnecessary tests and procedures. When properly deployed in a medical setting, standardization doesn't prevent a physician from deviating from the care algorithm if a particular patient's circumstances require it. There is actually a Kaiser Health News article talking about someone looking around for any example where adherence to a centralized care algorithm harmed a patient and they couldn't find any. Here's a clip from Daryl Moon, who is CEO over at Orient and founder of the Aspirational Healthcare Conference. He's a former healthcare executive, and here he is in episode 305 talking about why he got out of the hospital administrative business. He found an unwillingness to create care plans that kept patients from, as he put it, falling off the top of the cliff, although they were really happy to catch them in ambulances at the bottom. Well, my first goal in life was to be a hospital administrator, and I got lucky real early and got to run 10 different hospitals as either the CEO, assistant administrator, or CFO controller. During those years, as I traveled around the country working for some of the largest hospital systems in the country, I became very focused on continuous quality improvement. Edwards Deming teaches continuous quality improvement. We were teaching our hospital employees about that because the Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Health Organizations was moving towards CQI. And as I was doing that, I, I sat back and I thought, you know, if I apply those principles to healthcare industry overall, you know, there's nothing about my job as a hospital administrator that's aligned with my customer. And yet CQI is all about who's your customer and what does your customer need and how do you delight the customer? And yet the real customer of healthcare is those who buy healthcare, which is largely the government or employers. And I thought there's no way that a CEO of a company wants what I want. I want to fill up my hospital. And there's no way that they want that. And so I eventually left the treatment side of healthcare to try to put a fence at the top of the cliff. We spent our time basically parking our ambulance at the bottom of the cliff to get as many people to fill up our hospital, but nobody was putting fences on. So the last 23 years, I've spent building companies that do just that. And I'm passionate about speaking to CEOs, which I do get to do often, and just say, guys, you're the buyer of healthcare. Why do you put up with deficit-based healthcare? Why are you willing to you know, put up with a system that's not aligned with you? The show today is about how to actually get moving with care plans in the real world. Let's start out with a clip from Dr. Grace Terrell from Aventus Whole Health. Well, this clip actually starts with me asking Dr. Terrell my burning question, which is how the culture of medicine will rear up and clap back at anyone who dares to emphasize the science part of the art and science of medicine. So if I'm a working on a team, what that sort of necessarily entails is some sort of standardization of care, you know, because everybody on the team has to be on the same page. And I'm assuming that it's not, you know, like every single patient, you know, obviously there's evidence-based, this works better than that. Like, you know, every diabetes patient should get an eye exam would be maybe one example of that. So there's standardized sort of care plans that need to be created. 
which some physicians, you know, they call it cookbook medicine. I want to study this patient individually and do, because obviously there's this balance between precision medicine, which you were talking about at the beginning, but then standardizing it well enough that you can work together as a team and everybody sort of has an understanding of what the next steps are. How do you tend to reconcile that tension? It's a myth that population medicine or or evidence-based medicine and precision medicine are incompatible or opposites. The way that I think about population health or the sort of the move are three different business models. And if you start with the fee-for-service system, the way that the whole system is organized is whatever the little thing is that you do in the system, say you're a radiologist or you're a surgeon or you're an internist or you're a hospital, you do the thing that you do as efficiently as possible and you do as much as possible of that thing. And so you're efficient at the unit or the fee level and you invest in capacity. So you invest in, you know, if you're a hospital, more doctors or more buildings or more this or that, so you have more patients. And if you're a, you know, a radiologist, you want to have more x-rays. If you're a surgeon, you want to do more cases or whatever. When you get to value-based care or evidence-based care, you're essentially saying there's standards that are out there, and we're going to start measuring chronic conditions and outcomes, and we're going to look at it at the population level. It's still pretty much based on 19th century mathematics. You know, you're looking at the mean and the average, and most people are within this average, so most people will benefit from this surgery or from this medication. And then the final, you know, thing that's just now coming into sort of development, precision medicine, is that you're really thinking about a business model where you're looking at an N of one. So there's an individual out there in this ecosystem and what is the best thing for them. Well, you can't just start with random ideas of, I know what's best for this patient. You have to start within the concept that they're an individual that's in a population and that we've done studies based on population. And we believe that for whatever reason, this particular approach to a particular care problem has the best evidence for a population. But then you got to look at them as an individual. And this is what ought to excite physicians again, because you look at the evidence, you don't ignore the evidence. You don't say you've got more knowledge about um, something or that, or that, you know, that you can cook a better cake without a cookbook. What you do is you then think about the individual in front of you and what are their goals? Are they different than average? Is there something about them that needs to be taken into consideration? In the future, we'll have more data about this. We'll have genomics and other things that will allow us to really think about somebody and what's different about them than other people. But we can do part of that now. The business model for population health is not based on capacity. It's based on clinical information and outcomes at its best. And the business model for precision in health, for precision medicine will build on that by then having the ability through much more differentiated information and the person in front of you to start thinking about them as individuals again. And for physicians, that ought to be a good place and space to be. But I just, you know, the idea that you can't that you don't start with the basics of evidence-based medicine is something that I just think silly at this point. I, as I've said to many people through the years, you know, I never ruin the pound cake when I use a recipe. And um, that's true most of the time. But you know what, if you're up in Denver versus the uh, sea level, you got to think about that boiling point temperature and baking soda and things a little different because it's a different environment. So you have to be more precise. And we can think about medicine the same way. 
Now, getting into what this looks like in practical terms, here's a clip from the show with Dr. Rich Clasco from Motive Medical on episode 321. He's explaining that physicians who take it upon themselves to not only create evidence-based care plans, but also to take solo responsibility for executing them. Sometimes I've sort of referred to this as non-cognitive medicine. It doesn't take a physician's expertise to know that they should keep their patients with diabetes in good glucose control. They should control their HbA1c's. They should control their blood pressure. They should control their lipids. These are, you know, a few examples of incontrovertible performance measures. And what we found is that by taking these off the table and getting everyone to compliance, adherence with these sorts of incontrovertible performance measures, taking the non-cognitive elements out of care, if you will, it's actually refreshing and enjoyable for physicians. We didn't go to medical school to you know, manage things that are rote and could be, you know, managed by checklists and, you know, sort of bookkeeping, if you will. The thing that I would assert that really delights physicians is utilizing that cognitive expertise that only a physician can have. There's lots of gray area. There's lots of subjectivity. There's lots of medicine that requires that expertise. But at the moment, we're bogged down to a great degree by the non-cognitive elements of medicine. So when you say the non-cognitive elements, this is what I'm understanding you saying, that there are certain things that are just, you know, they just are. Like you got to fill care gaps for cardiometabolic, you know, conditions, like just period. Like everybody's got to get an eye exam once a year in that category, for example. The physician doesn't have to do that. Like the physician doesn't have to sit there and scratch their head and think about whether this diabetes patient needs to get an eye exam. Like the nurse can do that. Somebody else can take care of ensuring that all the diabetes patients have had these essential high value services. Am I understanding this correct? And, and that's what you mean by non-cognitive. So the physician can focus on work at the highest level of their license. Like they're not doing things that the medical assistant could do. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And the culture of medicine is one in which we grew up as physicians in having to do everything. The buck stops with us. And so we <laughs> we will do everything necessary to affect the goal. But it's really an ineffective way to get to the goal. Making sure that patients schedule those annual eye exams is something that doesn't require a physician. It doesn't require a nurse by offloading the cognitive burden, if you will, of those rote tasks, it's freeing and uh, empowering and energizing for a physician to really utilize their special skill. I found that this is actually a great help in gaining adoption on the part of providers and physicians and helping payers to overcome this anxiety that they have about confronting their providers about these issues. As I say often enough in my own, with my own team, you know, if you put together your to-do list, you're also putting together your not to-do list because time is a limited commodity. And if you're spending your time doing one thing, there's an opportunity cost. You know, you just, you don't have time to do something else. Stacy, I love the way you said that. That is at the core of appropriateness. I say that appropriateness is explicitly acknowledging the trade-offs that we make to stay in that sweet spot, the overlap between the three circles of the Venn diagram. All too often, when we don't do something, we fail to be explicit about the choice that we're making in not making a choice. 
And one last clip here, just to round out our practical exploration of what care planning needs to look like for it to be successful at the organizational level. Here you can hear Nicole Bradbury first from episode 324. Nicole is the CEO and founder over at Mind247 and Kelly Conroy in the same episode from Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. Nicole talks first and then Kelly. This clip is a great note to finish on because they're explaining how MSSP ACOs, Medicare Shared Saving ACOs, accountable care organizations, are gathering the technology and processes, the infrastructure, to ensure that patients and doctors who serve them have what they need to keep patients healthy and out of our sick care system. My name, by the way, is Stacey Richter. And this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Data is key to that conversation. You know, a lot of doctors believe they're doing the right care, but until you show them, you know, here's your patients. Your patients are going to the hospital and you're not even aware of it. See how many of your patients are going to these specialists. You start to bring that data to the physician and it really does open their eyes. I believe most physicians want to care for their patients in the right way. And a lot of it, they just don't, they didn't even, they're so busy running on that fee-for-service hamster wheel. They can't even look out of outside of who's presented to them. They're just not aware of it. And so giving them the data, telling them that story, telling them how they can make a difference, supporting them by bringing the right patients in at the right time. That's how you really change the way physicians work. It's, it's really mostly giving them help. And there's, you know, there's always a few bad apples, but for the most part, I think it's putting that structure and that engagement in place. I'll give you a good example. So when, when I first started the ACO, I went to the doctor and I said to him, how are all your diabetic patients? And he said, all of my diabetic patients are well controlled. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because I see them. I said, well, what about the ones that you don't see? <laughs> and it was that simple. The light bulb went off in his head. Like, you're right. I don't reach out to them and bring them in. I only see them when they come in and if they come in. So it occurred to him, I do have a population of people that I don't see and I don't even know that I'm not seeing them. So it's very interesting once you start to put that data in front of them. One physician told me, and I'll never forget it, he said, this deal's so good if it wasn't from the government, I wouldn't believe it because it is the way we want to treat patients anyways. We've had to learn to adopt to a very broken, fragmented, volume-driven, fee-for-service way of doing business. So they actually love the concept and love getting paid for the work that they're doing. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.